Welcome back to the I Wish You Knew podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Adam Lane Smith, and with me is my friend, Sarah Don Moore. Sarah, glad to see you again. Good to see you, Adam. Today's episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Rugged Legacy Grooming Supply. Make sure you check them out if you want to look good. With us also today is Jessica Baum. She is a licensed mental health counselor. She specializes in attachment theory, in trauma, and a number of other fascinating subjects. I'm very much looking forward to this. Thank you, Jessica, for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. What is something that you wish people knew right off the bat about your field and about your specialization? Oh, God, that's a tough question. I mean, I guess every behavior makes sense. And when you start to really understand yourself deeply, you start to make sense of your behaviors and you kind of shift into a more compassionate place. Now, that sounds a lot like B.F. Skinner to me. Is that a big piece of your work? Are you a big behaviorist or is that just a piece that you happen to work through? Um, well, it's interpersonal neurobiology and understanding how we adapted and survived and making sense of, of those things. And I think once we make sense of those things, we develop more compassion for ourselves and others. So Jessica, I'd like to ask a little bit of um, a personal question. If you might share with us, a lot of people get into this work because you know something might have happened to them or they had a family member or something kind of led them here. Would you mind sharing what led you to this work? Sure. I mean, my personal relationships have been struggles. So that's kind of what got me into attachment theory. I studied something called a MAGO therapy, which is couples therapy. And so I did that for many years and I helped family systems. Um, I worked with addiction and codependent, quote unquote, codependency. And so between my own personal struggles and what I've treated and helped in my private practice, I became fascinated, mostly with attachment theory. This is wonderful. So I was a licensed psychotherapist for many years, an LMFT, licensed marriage and family therapist. And if this was your approach in school, please let me know. A lot of the clinicians that I've talked to over the years, they got the same treatment I did, which was in school, they skip through attachment theory, usually very quickly and say, this is, there's no diagnoses that will really work for this unless you work with little children. Uh, personality disorders is all you're really going to see with this. So we can skip through attachment theory fairly quickly. Let's get into the abnormal psychology. And we had multiple abnormal psychology classes and things like that. What was it that drew you into attachment theory and how did you discover it? Yeah, I mean, actually, attachment theory, as you probably know, has the best test out there, which has such um, proven scientific results. But I think because I'm a woman who identifies as anxious and fell in love many times with avoidance, I think there's a hot topic around wanting to understand what that allure is. And so, you know, I studied, you know, the neurobiology behind all of that and what woman doesn't want to know um, what's behind that. So that's kind of what got me into it. And an imago theory is, for those listening, it's why we are attracted to what is familiar and how we replay like some of our trauma on our relationships. So I got trained in that. So those, I don't know if that answers your questions, but that's kind of what brought me to really wanting to dive deep into this material. Wonderful. Now, from a neurobiological perspective, that that is music to my ears, because that means that you can identify it if you understand potentially what's happening within your body, within your system. So can you kind of explain what, if somebody's watching and doesn't know anything about attachment theory, what are some of the things, but there's a lot of people that don't, I think it's still kind of underground for a lot of people. It's making, a res it's making, it, it's coming out. I think there's more content that we're seeing more so now than ever, but what is the feeling that somebody experiences of an attachment wounding in your best words? 
That's a great question. Uh, so I think that as we're learning that our attachment system or adaptations get laid down in early, early, early years through our automatic nervous system and we're biologically wired for connection. So what happens between mother and an infant and, the, and that didactic dance and that co-regulation is when we are in connection, we feel safe and our nervous system is wired in a certain way. And when we're not attuned to well enough or when we're misattuned or there's inconsistency, we start to form in an anticipated bodily response towards connection. And that those patterns lay down like the foundational blueprint as to how we respond to intimacy, closeness, abandonment, and connection later on in life. So depending on where we fall, or I don't even like to categorize it, but if we don't get our needs well met and we're not well attuned to, and there's a lot of left brain uh, uh, how do I explain this for the average person? So if, if we're not seen into and taken care of well enough and, and does not have to be perfect, there's actually like 60 something percent. Uh, we, we developed wounds that live in our body somatically and adaptive strategies to help us survive. And when we're in relationship as adults, whatever might feel threatening, whether that's someone coming too close or someone abandoning us, our adaptive strategies that um, live in our nervous system will get activated. And so we'll do a lot of behaviors in our relationships to quote unquote, stay safe. Um, and most of those behaviors are adaptive strategies and nervous system responses that were hardwired in to our nervous system in a very early age. So it's very layered and it's very complicated. And yes, there are four types, but it's really around how we, we are designed to stay safe and what, patterns come up to keep us safe, which I ironically cause more havoc than keep us safe. But that's why we do them. And what do you think the breakdown is from a gender perspective? Because I hear a lot of attachment specialists in particular talk about men being more avoidant versus women being more anxious. Is there a delineation within within the genders and how does that present and why potentially do men tend to go more avoidant versus women more anxious? And what brings those two people together? I mean, obviously core wounds, but what is the underlying kind of glue that brings it together that makes it so attractive? Okay, so those are two like really big questions. So let me just start with one. And the, so the first question was, so are there gender differences? The truth is, yes, there are. Um, I would say probably more males fall on the avoidant side, although avoidant people are very anxious. Um, our society promotes that for men to kind of not work with their feelings and shut down and, and so they can fall more into that scale just because of cultural in influences and then like intergenerational stuff that gets passed down. But it's not always the case. Um, so a lot of it has to do with your mother's brain. And so a lot of people can, males can actually be anxious inside and have avoidant protectors because that's also more culturally acceptable. So a true avoidant, um, male or female, is someone who was raised by um, other avoidance. So people who couldn't emotionally see into the child and focused more on success and, um, being there for the child, like meeting their needs, but not really understanding their emotional needs. That's a true avoidant. And 
that's glamorized for a male in our society, being really successful, not being really emotional. So they're pushed into that category sometimes. But I want to be really careful because there's, it, it often is not always the case because we are wired by our mother's brain. So if our mother was anxious, we might be anxious and we might kind of show off like we're avoidant just because that's what culture wants us to see. But we can be both where it's more acceptable for a woman to be more emotional or express her emotional needs, or that might be an intergenerational thing. That's a cultural thing that's been passed down, but it's very much a mix. I mean, I definitely see it in my private practice that many men show up anxious and women show up avoidant. And so I see it switch and actually it can switch in the very nature of one relationship. So they're both avoiding intimacy, right? An anxious person is avoiding their abandonment wounds. So they're also avoiding something. And so one person can start out as, you know, the pursuer and you can switch roles in the same um, relationship. And we also embed more than one attachment style. So it's all very interesting and not quite as black and white as we would like to talk about because there's just so many layers. Guys, I want to tell you about our sponsor today, Rugged Legacy, because from a woman's perspective, there is nothing more annoying than kissing a guy and then walking into the restaurant looking like you just rubbed up against some sandpaper. So this will help you and this will make your woman happy. So I've done a lot of work with attachment theory over the years. And one thing that I try to do to simplify things down for people is there is secure attachment. And then there's insecure attachment, right? Where you you don't feel safe. So you're gonna do irrational things that don't look right to other people. They don't make sense in the context. Um, what have you found through the work that you do and, and through all of your care? How, how can somebody begin taking steps to address some of that that system pain, that, that those bad responses, or if we wanna call them bad responses, maladaptive responses that are embedded in their system what are some ways people can start combating that? Yeah, sure. And I, you know, I think that even if you're secure, you can have insecure reactions if you're partnered with someone who's on the other end of the spectrum. But I think you have to be with the root cause of the original wound in the presence of someone's nervous system that stays in what we call a ventral state. So we go to the wound, whether it's the abandonment or the pain or the original place, and you have the neuroception of safety from your therapist or whoever is helping you hold the original experience so that you can kind of move the embedded trauma that lives in your body and integrate it from that original experience to holding it with another nervous system. And then it gets integrated into the brain. So shoots up the right and we kind of make sense of it and we keep holding the pain together. And eventually you build a window of tolerance and you're able to hold the original wound. And once you hold the original wound, you're adaptive. You can call them maladaptive. I call them brilliant strategies to stay safe. You don't need them as much. And on a good day, you're not doing as many of those behaviors because your own capacity to be with your own pain is greater because you've used someone else's nervous system to re-experience it, hold it, and heal it. And that was something very interesting. I found, uh, I really enjoyed your content on Instagram. And on there, you had a piece of content not too long ago that said, you don't just need to change your nervous system, right? You need to become an observer of your nervous system. Can you talk us to us a little bit about that? Because we are conscious beings more than we're just animal beings or more or a nervous system. What is your perspective there? And how can people at home maybe 
dissect that statement of observing your system versus just changing it? Yeah, we live in a very like left shifted world. Something's wrong, fix it, right? And so our nervous system has an inherent wisdom to it and it shifts. And let's face it, no one loves fight, flight, freeze. We don't love these states that we're in, but there's so much wisdom in these states. And often when we're in these states, we want to get out of them. But the truth is we actually want to meet them, right? So we're in a dissociated state. There's a lot of things you can do, but meeting it with another nervous system is actually the best way. And letting your nervous system kind of cycle through whatever it's going through, sometimes it's very necessary or doing the somatic work rather than just shifting or changing or trying to control our nervous system sometimes we have to honor the process like if you've been in fight flight for a really long time and your system's starting to collapse there's a reason why you're starting to collapse and like why don't we give you some space like your system is recalibrating and so i think as a culture we tend to want to control too much I think we need to hold more for each other. I think we need to meet our systems more with other people. I think we live in way too much isolation when we're going through scary things. I think another person's nervous system or co-regulation is really the best way to meet um, what's going on for you. And we tend to want to be self-reliant and resilient in that way. And it only hurts us more in terms of healing. I like that because that's a lot of co-regulation, like you said. And it sounds like systematic desensitization through co-regulation with somebody who is steady enough to be able to meet that and, and hold space for us. Really now, love absolutely. Really love that. The question though becomes if somebody is just starting to understand this process and that they might be affected by this. And a lot of people that follow us, I don't know if who you're following is based out of or who the main followers are, but a lot of them are single. A lot of them are getting back into dating or they are dating and they're noticing these patterns. So what, what would you say to somebody who was just kind of recently diagnosed and then they are getting to a date or they're trying to break the patterns of who they potentially are attracted to or what attraction means in general, what is chemistry? How do they start to recognize that that person may not be the might not be the best co-regulation for them, mm. might not be someone that would be potentially very good for them. How can they work within their neurobiology and within their system to recognize, ooh, I might need to pay attention to this feeling that I'm having that I might be thinking that is butterflies, but it's something else. Right. That's the question you asked me um, before and I didn't get to. So I think sometimes and I can break it down for anxiously attached and avoidant because that's I think what a lot of um, and maybe even narcissism for for the average person is when we are babies and our mother sees into us, we're usually bathed with a lot of neurochemicals, whether it's dopamine and serotonin, we're, we're just, we're supposed to be in this warmth, right? And, and we're the center of the world. If we missed that, and we didn't get enough of that, because we're, we're carrying these on these wounded parts with us. When we go on a date with someone who literally treats us like we are the center of the universe, our brain is flooded with such wonderful chemicals that we didn't receive when we were a baby. And it is really intoxicating. So in that 
beginning stage because it feels really good, we can miss a lot of red flags. So it's, it's, it's can be alluring and it can be confusing when, oh my God, this feels really good. Or he or she is making me feel like I'm the center of the world and I've never received this attention before. And a lot of that is a missing developmental link and our brain didn't get that. So it can feel really safe. It can feel really wonderful. And really what it is, is so at the beginning of what might be a trauma, what considered a trauma bond, right? Because we're not catching the red flags. We're just going off the original feeling. So that's like part of it. And the, the other part is, you know, when you're dating someone, if someone's trying to merge really fast or rush in too fast, that's a red flag. And that's an early developmental um, wound as well. So people with earlier wounds don't love to be alone and they tend to want to merge whatever, whatever end we can say narcissism, but anxiously attached people want are afraid of being alone too. So they're, they tend to merge faster and join faster rather than taking a slow approach of really getting to know the other person and integrating them into the world. The feelings are very heightened. They're, the allure is very big. They're, sometimes it's a fantasy bond. So they're rushing towards each other as like kind of an escape, but they're not conscious of it. So for anyone who's listening, you just want to go really, really slow. You want to make sure ethics are in a line. Everything's in alignment. You want them to meet your friends slowly. You know, you just want to go as slow as possible. And if you go really fast and you have the love goggles on, well... Don't, it's like everyone's been there. I mean, that <laughs> happens and it's, it's not about judgment. It's about saying, okay, your brain really needed this and it might become a really tough lesson down the road. And hopefully if you keep doing the work, you can get conscious around, is this person actually a safe, great partner for me in the long term, Or did I just jump in too fast for other reasons? Thank you for clarifying that. I guess the, the question too is that, can you work with someone? You know, how do you kind of recognize this and then have the conversation of, I don't know how that would sound on a first date. Adam, I'm kind of sensing some avoidant tendencies. Like yeah, bust, bust out the attachment <laughs> styles on date one yeah, and running through a test. Yeah, I would love to be a fly on the wall with that kind of conversation. But, but it is something that I think we we do need to talk about because obviously like the dating advice out there, right. Is like three red flags. And then it's like, you notice the red flags and then you're out the door. But I wonder if we're going to kind of repair some of the, some of the dating atmosphere in general and repair relationships, how would we have those conversations early? You know, you're attracted to someone, right. And you feel a chemistry and you feel a bond, or do you not have that conversation and you just present boundaries that might speak louder than your words oh. and see what happens? Sure. So here's, here's maybe a question. Um, if we can boil that down, what I'm thinking and what I think you're, you're, you're getting around is, are there some yellow flags rather than red or green flags, are there some yellow flags that you maybe advise people to check for mm -hmm. when they're in the earlier stages of a relationship that tell you slow down, pay attention here? And question number one, what are some yellow flags that you look at? And then question number two, maybe what's a, a more productive way of bringing up those yellow flags with the other person, if you think that that's appropriate? Yeah, yellow flags. Well, I think, I don't know if this answers that. I think what's really important is that both people are reciprocating and sharing. So with anxious and avoidant, an anxious person might feel like they're vulnerably sharing. Sometimes they are, sometimes they aren't. And the avoidant person typically isn't sharing a ton. 
And so, and you want to know, is someone sharing about their past? Are they taking ownership around their life and responsibility of around the choices they've made? Um, how are they looking at their life in that way? Are they just blaming their past, you know, and doing all of that? So that's one thing. Another yellow flag. I mean, we all have baggage. Every one of us has a core wound. We all have adaptive strategies. Even if we're the most secure person, we have stuff. So is there self-awareness? Is there, can you tell if this person has any insight to, or do they have any desire for personal development? I mean, where are they on that scale? Um, are they kind? Are they compassionate? And I think the more you heal, the more you can tell the difference between a love bombing and someone who is just kind of in, interacting with you in a kind and compassionate way. And there's a reciprocate. I love the word you use boundaries because I think in the beginning, someone might rush towards you and you might feel like they really are into you. And if you set some boundaries, see how they respond. And really when someone's rushing towards you, it could be more about them than you. So going slow or pumping the brakes and seeing how they respond um, tells you where their dopamine levels are. And so there's all these like little things you can do. And I think don't look for the perfect person. Um, if you have good friends and family support, process your dates with them, you know, be really honest with yourself. If, if you're feeling a lot of dopamine and a lot of chemicals and it feels really good, make sure you're processing anything that might be concerning with someone who has your best interest at heart. And wait to sleep with someone because there's so many chemicals and hormones that get released when you start to become intimate with someone that you become attached. And so you want to make sure that you can, that you like this person and that you'd be their friend and that you might even be able to fight well or your, all your morals, like you just want to make sure there's enough there before you start to confuse your body because your body is programmed to keep this person close once you start sleeping with them. So just so waiting a little longer on that would be my advice. I love hearing that advice. Yeah. Do you think that dating advice is just a kind of trash <laughs> when you figured this out, when you see all the dating advice come out on social media and it's talking about the three things you should do and the three things you shouldn't do. And there's so much noise right now on social media about dating, because I think dating has become a bit of a, a game, like a cat and mouse situation. And do you think that if people healed this and really looked at these core wounds, like we wouldn't even need this type of dating advice, especially for men? There's a lot of dating coaches that are appealing to men and giving them more strategies. And I'm and I'm and I'm watching it going, don't give an avoidant more strategies. Like, don't give don't give people more strategies. They just need to date from an authentic place, from a values-based system. But I wonder what your take is on when you see other content creators give that type of advice. I mean, I have mixed feelings about it. I think that there's, you know, when you heal, you attract differently. So the more work you do on yourself, the more your vibration changes, the more your wounds charges go down and the more you see and the less likely you are to attract someone who's wounded on a, so there's different stages of developmental wounding. So the more you heal, the less likely you are to attract someone on a, on a, you know, more of a narcissist is an early, early wound. 
Um, so if you keep doing your work, you will be able to kind of use more discern discernment as you're starting to date. And I think I'm fascinated by, um, the allure, like there's a mysterious allure towards what we're being pulled towards. Sometimes it's a healthy sense of love and sometimes it's for what's familiar. That's where trauma kind of comes in to play. So I think it's dangerous when people are teaching people to be inauthentic to who they are. I think that avoidant people get a really bad rap, but they're great partners for some secure people. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just the problem is, you know, the anxious and the avoidant tend to be like moth to a flame. And, and there's a reason for that. But um, yeah, I think, I think you're right. Like it's, it's a little frustrating if the coaches are teaching you to be inauthentic to yourself, because I think the more authentic you can be, the more you just rule out people who aren't right for you. And eventually there's abundance out there. Eventually you're going to match with someone who's right for you right now, rather than trying to be something that you're not. One question that I have is as people are addressing this, because here on this podcast, we try to give people actionable steps, right? This is wonderful information and, and you're providing a great, a great amount of detail. I love it. Um, actionable steps that somebody could grab some of this information and then they're going to say, what do I do with this? Right? We read a textbook or, or we watch a YouTube video and we're not sure what to do next. Um, would you provide opening steps to differently to men or women, or do they follow the same opening steps for addressing some of this? And what would some of those opening steps be that you'd recommend? I would not give different advice for male or women. And I would say if you're dating and you're feeling, um, quote unquote, triggered by your partner or your potential date, you want to look at that person like an avatar and say, okay, person X is bringing what up inside of me. And then you want to say, okay, I'm going to replace the word trigger with awakened. They are awakening my early abandonment wounds. They are awakening my fear of rejection. They are awakening what theme inside of me. Now, when and how many times has this theme showed up in your life? And how early was it when you ever first felt the sensation where I might be dropped? Or why aren't they returning this call? Where do you feel it in your gut, in your heart, in your muscles, right? This is where the somatic, this is where the trauma lives. So you want to kind of take the other person out of the equation and if you really want to get into your themes and your core wounds, you want to say, okay, this person is just bringing up my work. Everybody is a mirror back into myself. I, if, you know, person, let's say Michael, right? Person Michael is bringing this up in me. There'll be another Michael that will bring that up in you because it lives inside of you, right? So your wounds live inside of you and they get activated on dates and they get activated in close intimate relationships. So anytime you get upset, which is pretty valid and it's happening in the now and it's definitely happening here and you might want to blame the other person. You also want to start to ask yourself, has this feeling happened to me before? If so, when, what is it hitting that's deeper? How early is it? And can I bring that information to someone else so I can make this not about Michael and really bring in some more deeper insight for myself so I can get to some healings because they're going to be, there's going to show up a hundred more times, right? Part of being a good partner is taking care of yourself so that the other person doesn't have to. And Rugged Legacy Grooming Supply will help you take care of yourself and look your best in your relationships. I guess the question too I have is that a lot of people who come from these core wounds and have some family structures in place that, that you know, help to create some of these things, where do they go for a safe space? Now, I come from a little bit more of the 
um, addiction and, and trauma where I would recommend, you know, doing some 12 step work or going to meetings or getting a, you know, a group of people. But there are a lot of men out there that don't have a place to go or they don't have someone to check in with, you know, whether it's a therapist, I think therapy hasn't necessarily gotten the best rap for men. So they don't, they don't feel really that's a safe place to go. So I guess particularly because I, I coach a lot of men and a lot of them don't have families. A lot of them, they don't talk to their friends about these types of topics because it's very difficult within the a man's circle to really be this vulnerable. So I just want to, would love to talk about from a safe space, from a man's perspective, where, where do they go to really start engaging in some of these deep conversations where they might be, they don't have a, they don't have a space. Who should they start with? Who should they start with? Yeah. I love that question because um, a therapist is, might not be a safe person, right? So it depends. And I think that, you know, we need to look for people. I call them anchors in our life. And there are people who are warm, non-judgmental, present, and consistent. That's what's going to heal any insecure attachment. And so if we can have people that we can share with who will not fix us, and that's like the big thing, right? We always want to fix people and help them, but really just be with them and hold the experience. And if we could, if men could find other men or anyone who's just caring and can just listen and they can safely start to share, their sense of safety will start to shift. And it's very hard for men to be vulnerable, but there are safe relationships. And I think a safe relationship is one that's just non-judgmental, warm and receptive. And we need to be that for each other so much more. And the more secure we become, the more we can give that to others. The more insecure we are, the more that we have a hard time holding that space for others. So finding mentors, teachers, a friendship that just that's just consistent and warm and non-judgmental. That can be the most healing relationship you can have and being able to trust that I can call this person and share and they're not going to fix me. They just start holding the pain. That's actually how we heal. Now, what do you find when it comes to couples? Sorry to cut you off there, Adam. Um, when it comes to, I don't know if you coach couples or what you see when somebody starts to heal themselves within a relationship, what that journey looks like for both parties and how you can bring your partner along the journey with you? Or do you, or do you see, um, couples not making it because one person heals and the other person is not along for the ride? Yeah. So I am a couples therapist and, um, it both happen. So uh, the only agency we have in life is to do our own healing. Imago therapy well, for anybody who's listening, there's a Mongo therapist who are hopefully well-trained all over the world. Actually. Um, you do the trauma work with your, your significant other. So the therapist holds the space while you both do your individual work and it's a deepening. And there is a very good chance that you can heal within the relationship. Sometimes one person heals and then the, what the other person does doesn't impact them in the same way. So the relationship can, can stay the same. Sometimes one person heals and they decide they want or need more and they end up leaving. And the truth is you never know what's going to happen. You don't know how it's going to unfold. Just because one person might be doing more healing doesn't mean the relationship's going to end. It means their window of tolerance might change. The system 
altogether changes. So I tell people, no matter what, if you can get in with your, your significant other and go to EFT, Emotionally Focused Couples Counseling or Imago Therapy, that's gold. If you can't, you have to find a good therapist who understands somatics and attachment and you start doing the work. That can still heal your relational space. And either way, it's going to heal you. So what the right next step for you will come at the right time for you. So up till now, we focused a lot on couples, right? And dating, and that's wonderful. And a lot of people, a lot of the coaching clients who come to me, they say, Adam, do I have to get a partner to be able to fix my attachment? Should I start with a partner to fix my attachment? And so many men, when they're lonely and hurting, they instinctively go to a female. Like, I need to have a woman in my life to then start fixing relationships with and make myself feel better. But one thing that you've shared here is that your attraction will change, your desires will change in relationships. So tell me your thoughts on, is it maybe more optimal for the average person who's listening right now to try to start fixing this in romantic settings? Or maybe would you advise they try in friendship first? Maybe the lower stakes are easier. What are your thoughts? I say try or become aware wherever you're at. And I think that attachment will happen no matter what. So attachment, ruptures, and conflict come with our closest relationships. So if you're not in a relationship, yeah, forming closer relationships with males and male and female friendships, um, that's a great way to start to build intimacy and having more meaningful relationships in general. Taking sex out of it is definitely easier for you to start to address some of these things. Adding sex and, and romance to it definitely complicates things. So if, if you are listening and you're single and you're struggling with all these things, yeah, starting to build um, healthy relationships with both males and females, healthy, intimate friendships. And when I mean intimate friendships that are deeply sharing, deeply caring with each other would be a great place to start. So that way, when you meet the right person, they don't become your everything. You have this support. You have all these great supportive relationships that you're really close to around, around you. But biologically, we are wired to kind of seek out a person. So that might be great advice. And you're biologically might be like, but I want a person and I want to find her or I want to zero in on him. And that's hard to go up against. That is our biology. So, you know, that could be happening at the same time. So I would say try to do both. Um, start where you are and forming safe relationships with safe people. Um, that's that's the beginning of, of starting to heal these kinds of insecure attachment wounds. Mm, you said something that I want to just clarify. As far as safe for our audience. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Because when you grow up, right, in that family system, I think we all know, you don't necessarily know what safe feels like. So if I'm, if you're coaching, and what does that sound like? What does that feel like when you are trying to portray that feeling to a client? Like how to identify how a to identify, yes, like a somebody who is has a calm nervous system. I'm really laughing because this is like the subject of my next book. But um, when you start to develop intimate relationships with safe people, whether it be a therapist and friends and coaches, your nervous system starts to recognize true safety. And so there's a difference between what is familiar from your, from your somatic embodied experience from childhood. You know, maybe your dad was avoidant, your mom was anxious, so you're used to that. And that feels familiar. So you can be pulled towards that, right? Towards I'm starting to heal and I'm going to be hanging out with so-and-so and all these people and they're 
calm, they're consistent, they're warm, my nervous system is going to start to recognize that in another. And the more my nervous system actually recognizes that, the more my work might show up, ironically. But the more that my nervous system will start to say, okay, this is the new norm. This person's presence, this person's energy, the way they're responding to me, it feels different. Maybe it doesn't feel familiar, but it's different and it's safe. And now I know this, this is what I need to get my body to understand that this is love, right? This is literally love. When someone can show up in a consistent, compassionate way for me, whether it's romantic or not, this is a caring relationship. And my, my body needs to start to trust that. And once I start to trust that, those other types of relationships that have more chaos and more charge to them, they be slowly become less alluring and you slowly move towards true safety. And that actually is a process that I, I'm excited to dive deep into, but it's our nervous system starts to recognize safety when we're in the experience of enough people where their nervous systems are in the presence of eventual state of safety too. And that's why you want to build anchors in, in this world. If you are insecure, you want to find people who are warm, consistent, non-judgmental to show up for you consistently. And your nervous system will slowly heal just through the nature of those relationships. You will inherently reach out for them. And over time that will become your new, your new safe. I love this because so much of the work that people do, unfortunately, is intellectualizing where they try to learn and read and grow and learn and read and grow. And then they don't, they stop. They stop short of having the experiences that would then start healing that, that response. And so many people have asked me, Adam, can I do this without the painful experiences? Can I do it without the scary stuff? Right. When when will I know I'm ready to do the scary stuff and have those conversations? It doesn't sound like it's possible. It sounds like the experiences are what ultimately heal you. Where where do you think is the safe line? Because I think what's really being asked there is when am I safe to have those experiences? When do you advise somebody, okay, you know what? You have gathered enough information. Go have some experiences. Where, where do you see that being the right place for people? Well, I mean, so it, your system won't let you have the re-experiencing in, in a therapeutic sense unless there's a form of safety. So... You know, it all comes down to safety, but I think that when the wounding is done early on and you store it, you need to re-experience it with a new person who actually can meet it. And if we don't re-experience and meet it, it stays with us. So unfortunately, I wish, I wish there was some way around it. All I know is that you don't have to do it alone and it's meant to be held and healed with another human being. And so, and we can't heal it alone. So if you're listening and you're like, I don't want to go through it. It's like, I get it. I went through it. I have a lot of insecure attachment myself. I've gone through the depths of hell, I feel like. And yet in the presence of someone who could hold my experiences, I am living such a freer life right now. And I'm living and I'm able to have such deeper connections and feel so much safer in my world. And so there is really, it's, there's a, there's a byproduct of living through that and getting the support and, and having the wisdom that I have this right support lined up to get through it. But there's no, there's no getting around it really. I think we can stay unconscious of it or we can avoid it. And I think we'll do that until we have enough safety in our life to experience it or we hit such a wall that we have like no more no choice because we're just like so incredibly miserable inside 
Mm. Now, the dynamic of, and I'd love both of your your takes on this, the, the dynamic of when two people find themselves in these types of relationships, right, where you might have this, this dysregulation, this nervous system, anxious attachment versus avoidant, they get there and together, they come together, and they're good for six months, and then all of a sudden, right, the conflict starts to ensue, or there's one that's pushing and pulling, or uh, the anxious person is starting to create more conflict because they're feeling that the other person is pulling away. How do you recognize? How would you tell people to kind of recognize that that pattern might be happening? Because I think a lot of people think, "Oh gosh, you know, let's we're just fighting all the time. What's happening here?" Like they don't understand that there's something deeper that potentially could be going on. That if you address it, that the relationship could be saved. But that is one of the things that I notice a lot of my coaching clients. Um, you know, I've had personal experience with it where the person will create conflict to see if the other person is still interested or, but it's coming from a subconscious place. So how do you recognize that within yourself? If you are coaching a client, what is it to pay attention to versus real conflict or versus this is my dirty little attachment coming to coming to haunt me in this relationship? Well, you just asked the question that basically was the reason why I wrote my book. But I think that connection is our biological imperative. And to get conscious around, I am fighting right now because he's shutting down and I want connection. Or I am, you know, understanding that the root of most of our fights come down to disconnect and a misattunement. So it's not about the garbage and it's not about this or that. It's really around, are we connecting? And I think a lot of couples fight continuously and they're just missing each other. They're missing intimacy. One is pursuing, one is shutting down. There's this dance and it's like, how can we get conscious what the dance is? Get out of the nitty gritty of the details and see where are we, we're just not connecting. It's all about connection. And um, you know, I write a lot about the anxious avoidant dance because it is actually something that you can treat and it's something that you can get really conscious of. You know, the avoidant partner is scared of, of connection and closeness, terrified of that consciously and unconsciously usually scared of abandonment. And the anxious person is scared of abandonment consciously and usually very unconscious of their fear of intimacy. So there's a lot going on and at play. So both can do their own work. And, you know, for an anxious person, that would be sitting with their abandonment wound and, um, you know, trying to bring that to someone that can actually hold it because your avoidant partner might not have the capacity to hold what you're trying to pass off to them and vice versa. So once we kind of really get conscious, which is really hard, I mean, really, really hard work, but it's, it's a lot of, you know, dancing and, and it can be quite miserable when you're stuck in it. But that's why I wrote the book is to, you know, start to bring this at least to your awareness. And then when you have in your awareness, then you can begin to get some help around it and, and you can shift and change your whole relationship. I have a two part question. The first one is going to sound really, really weird. So I hope that you'll bear with me. And after we talk about that one, then I have a follow up question that I swear it, it will make sense. Um, in the modern world, we have a huge number of technological advances happening right now, right? We have AI, we have virtual reality, we have uh, just ev everything where we could create. We're getting to a place, I should say, where we can create custom scenarios, we can create visually 
realistic experiences that we could have with people. And in the past, I've, I have heard of some men's dating coaches, for example, having men go through dating programs, dating simulators a little bit that while they're very rudimentary, it can train you in a little bit for how to respond more authentically than men are used to with women in conversations. And I'm looking at that and I'm wondering, could we use that going forward, that sort of technology to simulate having, if you're an anxiously attached person, having a conversation with somebody where you have to have a conflict and then maybe using that technology slowly to reprogram your nervous system, even if it's just that initial bump. Is that something you think could be useful? And if it was, how? What, what is one big scenario that you would want to program into a simulator like that that might help an anxious person? Something you see them go through all the time that really does a light bulb for them? That's my first question. Wow, I'm, I've never been asked a question like that before. Um, and I'm always open to technology helping. I think that activating the abandonment wound probably early on and then having the space and the awareness to work through it would be a benefit. Um, or yeah, I, I like that's, that's a big question. Um, yeah. having the couple go into conflict earlier, just ah. <laughs> to, to see, to see how they handle rupture and repair and, and build it. And are they capable of building deeper in, intimacy and do they have empathy and the, are they, you know, what's going on there in their, um, in that kind of conflict. I know, you know, for someone who's more anxious or codependent, they might get conflict and they just self-sacrifice or ten the tendency is always to self-sacrifice or self-abandoned. So kind of looking at, okay, so we can stimulate some conflict and see how both respond in fear. Does one become shut down or more selfish? Does one become you know, more of a sacrificer and apologizer. So starting to see those traits show up earlier um, would would help, I think would help understand, okay, can you guys work through conflict well? So if we do have AI girlfriends for guys in the future, <laughs> Jessica suggests that she should introduce conflict earlier, but then help guide them through it. Now, uh, and, and I actually agree. I think that's fantastic. That, that is because it introduces it, gets it right out of the way, and it creates it can create such immense bonding and trust early on as you go. Then let's take that a step backwards from a future with AI and, and all of that to today, where we can't really quite do that. How could we... Or maybe a better idea is, is what might you recommend that people could do today if they're in a relationship right now with a partner or they're just getting to know somebody? What's one thing they could do to introduce a little bit of conflict earlier than usual that would still be safe, right? Don't pull a knife on your partner and say, hey, it's conflict. But, but what is something you could do that you might suggest somebody do right now on purpose to introduce some safe conflict and then resolve it? What's something good at the beginning of a relationship? I don't know that I would say introduce conflict per se, but I would say if something's bothering you, don't shut it down. Don't hold on to it. Like if you're dating someone and something's coming up for you and, and you really it's bothering you, voice it and see how the other person responds. Is it important to them? Do they get defensive? Um, are you guys able to work through it? Don't shut down the things that might be bothering you early on just to, because you're excited for the relationship or you're scared of rejection or anything like that. Voice what's going on and, and the way the other person responds is very revealing in terms of the nature of how your relationship might unfold. I love that answer. So 
I talk a lot about this on my platform because it was so critical to my development and you and I have very similar backgrounds. Um, the difference between true chemistry and intensity in a relationship. How can you differentiate early on in the dating process what the two different states feel like? Hmm. Uh, feel like. I don't know if I can say what it feels like, but I think that anyone who's listening who has ever felt charged because they're dating a bad boy or because the person doesn't respond quite right away or because they seem disinterested and they like the chase. Like if there's a charge to any of those things, be really honest with yourself because that's not healthy chemistry, right? That's already alluring. So it's like, oh, so you feel really butterflies. Butterflies aren't necessarily a bad sign, um, but you feel like you have a lot of chemistry for so-and-so. What is it? What is it? What behavior? What did you hear them say? What is the charge? And to what? Oh, when they talked about their job and they were so passionate and you loved the way they talked about it, I would say that's healthy chemistry. When they didn't respond to your text right away or they're, they're a little wild child or they're so opposite of you or, you know, they're the bad boy or that whatever, like you want to kind of look at like, what are those traits that are charging you up and are they really things that are healthy? Or are they just things that are lost within you that you're seeing and, and you're seeing in another person? And in the opposite of that, how do you attune to somebody who is safe to become attractive to that? Because I think I see a lot of people will say, oh, I just don't, I just didn't feel chemistry with them. And my automatic reaction or my question to them is, is it that they make you feel too safe. <laughs> they don't, they don't trigger kind of a deep, that deep need for approval seeking or you, there's not enough chase to them. Like they're present, they're answering your text messages, they're showing up for you, but you don't, I, I hear a lot of women say that, like you said, that if they're not the bad boy or if they're not the avoidant, then they don't feel attraction to them. How would you suggest to fix that template of attraction. Cause I think that's what a lot of, I think there's a lot to be said about that, especially with the dating apps. There are people that will get on there and feel an instant chemistry just by that picture. <laughs> and so it's like, how do you start to tease that apart and say, wait a minute, what, what are all these systems happening in the background that are drawing me and pulling me to this person? Not just from an evolutionary perspective, but from an attachment-based perspective. Is that clear? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's really clear. I mean, listen, we all have lessons to learn. And to some degree, if you're really attracted to the bad boy or the real avoidant, you might still have that lesson to learn. And, and you might not be able to stop someone from that type of attraction. I think the best thing you can do is if you're attracted to this person and there's an allure and we know it might not be healthy, let's stay working together and whatever comes up for you, let's stay doing the work and let's stay honest because this might crash and burn, but you might not be able to stop two people from merging. Right. And so we don't have control over that. And I think there are many people out there that was like, yeah, there was a couple of red flags and I went in head first. I mean, I know I've done it personally and I'm sure other people have done it. Um, so, you know, you have to heal because the allure lessens when you heal. And if someone's really boring and sometimes it's not a good fit, but sometimes give it some time, 
they might grow in a completely different, instead of like a bang, they might grow on you and you might fall in love with them in a slow, progressive way that might last a lifetime versus fireworks and out. So I would say, stay with what comes up, stay with the boring, form a friendship with them. It might grow. It might change, continue to do your own work. And sometimes people are just not, not great matches. And, and so there's so many variables that you just don't want to rule someone out because they don't have that charge. You might want to just keep them around, even if it's just a friendship for a little while and, and see if that grows in the right direction. You know, the guys are going to love this. Keep them in the friend zone. They're going to love, <laughs> but sometimes that's the best way. I think that you have to be upfront too, that it's not that it's not that you don't want to have sex with them. I think you have to be honest about that and, and just tell them like, I am attracted to you, but I like to take things slow because I want to get to know if we are a good partner, you know, if we're, we're going to create a good partnership, you know? And I think if a guy heard that and understood that he's not just spinning his wheels, he's not just wasting his time that he would be I okay with that. Oh yeah. Guys, guys complain when women say, you know, I deserve X, Y, or Z. But if a woman says, I'm very selective about the people that I connect with and that I'm going to take my time, I hope you'll do the same. And this would be an, a way to honor that connection that we're going to make eventually. Uh, secure men won't hate that. No. <laughs> secure men will say, that sounds great. Yeah, they'll probably actually respect that well, yeah. even more. And to grow respect, that's how you do it right off the bat. I love that. Yeah, and if, if the person doesn't like it, I mean, they might be more avoidant and needing to merge. And that, that gives you a lot of information. Listen, a secure person will attune to your needs. And so they won't, they're not going to push too much for something that you're not ready to do. Mm -hmm. I love that. Well, Jessica, can you share with us and with the people at home a little bit about what's important with you right now, projects you're doing, things that they can find with you and do with you, and then maybe where they can find you on socials? Wow. I'm in the process of writing a new book, but I can't even share about it yet because I'm literally in the deal right now. But my current book that's out, Anxiously Attached, Becoming More Secure in Life and Love, is an awesome book. It's doing well. It's in 12 countries. People are loving it. If you loved everything that we talked about today, I go into a lot of detail. It's also very easy to understand. So I have that. I have a coaching business. Um, I have a team of people who work with couples and individuals. And then I have a private practice here in Palm Beach for anybody who's local in Florida. So that's me. Um, I love what I do. I'm very fortunate. And yeah, working with attachment and trauma and core wounds. And basically, that's what I do all day. So. That's wonderful. Where can we find you? I have an Instagram, Jessica Baum, LMHC. And then you can literally put in Jessica Baum and I pull up everywhere. But um, beselfful.com is my coaching business. And then the Relationship Institute of Palm Beach is my private practice here in Palm Beach. Wonderful. And everybody listening, you can find that in the show notes. And if you're watching this, you can find it down in the description as well. Thank you so much, Jessica. Amazing conversation. And we look forward to having you on again. I would love that. I would really love to come on with you guys again. That was awesome. Thank, thank you. you so much. Well, thank you so much for joining us on I Wish You Knew. My name is Sarah Don Moore. You can find me at sarahdonmore.com where you will see my coaching products. And I have a course called Mastering Modern Love that talks a lot about attachment, but also how to really heal from the inside out and understanding male and female dynamics and tendencies. Adam, where can we find you? 
I am Adam Lane Smith. I am on adamlanesmith.com where you can find my coaching, my course, my books, all my materials for fixing attachment and building great relationships. And you can find me as at Attachment Adam on Instagram and on YouTube. Thank you so much. We'll We'll see see you you on the next one. (laughs) We'll see you on the next one.